Psalm 27. Uh, We're going to read down a little bit. David writes this psalm. The commentators kind of um, guess as to when this happens in David's life. We are not sure. There's actually a lot of places it could have popped up. Um, But the tone of it remains the same, wherever you want to place it. So let's begin in verse 1. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, the idea there, the picture is like a beast would come to eat something. My enemies and my foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. And though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. So David, the picture here is, as he begins this psalm, wherever this was in his life, he shows that he is besieged by these beastly enemies in a vicious kind of war. He is literally being attacked in one way or another. That did literally happen in David's life. Uh, In the physical, he was attacked. He was literally uh, in wars. It also happened in other ways, in terms of temptation, inner, outer. The idea is, whether David is talking about this literally or whether he's referring to something else he's facing, uh, these were more than just words for him. This was quite a reality. And the idea that he brings out here is let the darkness come however it would, whether it's darkness of enemies from the outside or whether it's the darkness of fears on the inside. David is declaring, I still have a light in that darkness. I still have a place, a horizon that I can look to for salvation, for mourning, for help in the middle of this. Uh, Light in the Bible is used of all types of goodness that comes directly from God. If you use Blue Letter Bible, you can type in the word light and see how it plays out in the Psalms or the Old Testament. But it's used of truth, of life, of clarity and understanding, the face and favor of God. It's used of glory. It's used of all different types of things that come from God to us. Uh, in many different ways. It's just a necessity, like the light of the sun is a necessity in our lives. Light from God, David knew he could find. And salvation, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, um, which you know we typically think of the gospel of being saved. The, the idea of salvation here is Certainly God's intervention, which is greatest in the gospel and the sending of his son. But in a way, particularly for him, that was unexpected. It was usually a deliverance from God, from some avenue or from some path that they would not have thought of. Uh, You know, I don't think David had this plan when he was 13 years old. Hey, one day I'm going to kill a giant. How should I kill it? With a, with a rock, maybe? You know, no. These things kind of dawned on him as he followed God. The Red Sea, Jericho, Daniel in the lion's den. The, the Old Testament, you can just trace through, and even in the New Testament, salvation, being besieged, faced with this difficulty, hardship, enemy, 
and salvation from that coming from some unexpected way, a deliverance that was supernatural from God. And what David is saying is, in the middle of all these things, here's where I'm at. These things are a reality. But there is also another reality here where, again, in verse 1, the Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Therefore, my heart will not fear. His, David's confidence is resting in, not in himself, but in God. The Lord is the strength of my life. And he's declaring that confidence in the middle of these real difficulties. Uh, sometimes this can, you know, I think particularly in our day and age, come off almost as prideful um, or posturing in one way or another. But really, when we look at those, a lot of those Bible stories that we love the most, it's that step of faith into these difficulties with confidence that ends up becoming the most beautiful pictures in the Bible when Joseph can stand before Pharaoh and say, I don't have an inter- interpretation, but the God I serve, he could tell you what your dream means. Tell me your dream. That's confidence. It wasn't in himself, though. It was because he trusted in the Lord. Of course, Joshua standing there telling the sun to stand still in the sky. <laughs> Bible says, God never listened to the voice of another man like that before. That's some pretty incredible confidence. But he had God's word that he would help him and give him victory. Of course, Daniel, trusting the Lord. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, trusting the Lord. We won't bow down. Our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, he's still the Lord. A remarkable confidence. And David, if you want to read his speech, heading in to fight Goliath, it's one of the greatest things in the Bible. And that confidence, again, wasn't set in themselves. It's beautiful because it's set in the Lord. And yeah, even in our day and age, there's a there's almost this press against that, like it's like it's fake for somebody to be going through something that is legitimately difficult, but yet somehow declare this type of confidence. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be shaken. The Lord is my light, and he's my salvation. I trust that deliverance is going to come to me from one avenue or another. And people are like, well, you know, it's okay if you, you struggle. It's, it's, almost, it's almost like those things shouldn't be happening or something, when really they should in the Lord. There's a, there's a wonderful place for them in a believer's life. I was reading, actually, a secular psychiatrist was talking about one of these problems even in his own life, and he talked about his wife who had had a miscarriage, and he is a psychologist. And after the miscarriage, the counselors and people came in and said, okay, we're ready to give you counseling, and she rejected the counseling. Like, I don't need it, I'm okay. And their response to her was so horrible that she was doing something horrific and was going to wound herself for the rest of her life, and it, it shocked him as somebody in the profession as if fortitude or resilience was a sin in our day and age. And that's somebody who doesn't even have God. Here, in this scene, David is declaring his confidence, not because he's so talented or he has the funds to handle the situation 
or he has the skills, or he even knows how the situation is going to be solved. What he's saying is, Jehovah, God Almighty, is my light and my salvation. So why am I going to be afraid? Why am I going to allow my heart to fear? He will be my provision. So no matter what the problems and the enemies encamped against me are, that I might see clearly, do I see just as clearly the light of God in my life? His presence. Do I expect his salvation, his deliverance? Will I be confident in that? David is declaring that here in front of us. Now, that, that looks like something specific in his life. If we move on in verse 4, he says this, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. So what does that life of confidence look like for David on the practical in, in a very practical way, making his one focus the pursuit of God. Do you notice that? Instead of being caught up in the enemies that are encamped against him, which are real, and the war that he is in, which is real, I am going to do one thing. I'm going to seek after the Lord. I want to be found where he is, I want to see his beauty. I want to inquire, contemplate, meditate in his temple. I'm going to make a singular focus here to find the Lord. And I'm not going to let all these other things distract me from that. Paul said something similar. This one thing I'm going to do was a focus. Forgetting those things that are behind, I'm going to press forward, ahead, that high calling, the heavenly calling that there is in Christ Jesus to apprehend what has already apprehended him. It was a focus. Notice the connection there. One desire, one thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek after. There's, there's a desire and a response there. There's a connection between the desiring and seeking. If I really want God in a true way, I will seek after him. Jesus connects those things for us. He says, if you ask, you'll receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be open to you. He connects our seeking and our finding of God. Uh, there's a part that we're to play in this. Jesus makes that clear. David makes that clear. Uh, you, you could just look at, think of, Think of any Christian through history that is notable for their love of the Lord. You think of an Augustine or a Wesley or a Calvin or a Bernard or of Clairvaux or 
anybody that you would think of, an A.W. Tozer, you, you look at these people and what one of the things that comes out of them, even though they have their intellect and their work, what, what you come away with is an impression of a person who wants God. This person is not satisfied without personal, true interaction with God. They want to find him, like David is talking about here. They were actively seeking after him. It was a heart's desire that came off in the things that they were doing. And David says, this is, this is my goal. And commentators kind of... Uh, argue, question whether the references between the tabernacle and temple here are literal or figurative, whether they're supposed to be pictures of one or the other. I think it's obviously both. He says that he will hide me in his pavilion in the secret place of his tabernacle. Obviously, you are not allowed to hide in, in the tabernacle, uh, especially in the secret place, the Holy of Holies. You, you could not do that. No hide and seek in the tabernacle. But David would say later that I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. You, you obviously didn't offer sacrifices other places either. So for David, I think he understood, yes, I can meet God spiritually anywhere, but I meet him specially where he promised to meet us, which was in the tabernacle. And I don't think David split those things up. He knew both of those things were true. He wanted to be in the place where God was dwelling. That's why I noticed four different words he uses for it. His house, his temple, his pavilion, his tabernacle. Each one has its own type of emphasis there. Um, You can study that on your own. That's your homework for tonight. Go think about it. Just because I'm teaching the Bible doesn't mean I have to tell you everything about the study. So read that on your own. Think about it. Each has its own emphasis. And David knew he would find the beauty and the direction and the protection he needed in the Lord and in his presence. In making him the one main thing he was seeking. So God and his presence, his tabernacle and him, they were connected. I don't think they were there were anything that uh, would be separated in David's mind. He understood the function, the proper function of the tabernacle was a meeting place between God and men. That was the point. Uh, which it, obviously God's house is still supposed to be for you and I today. It's kind of like, you know, Christmas and gifts. We have this thing set up that we do, and the gifts are a great representation of something. But if if one becomes more important than the other, then there's a problem, right? If the, if the gifts become first and Christmas becomes second, what we're celebrating gets marred. Um, and even in our hearts and in our lives, as we seek the Lord, those who come to church, if it's about the trappings first and God second, then there'll always be some type of problem. Things will be marred. For like, I'm not going to that church. The coffee shop's not even done yet. They don't have their priorities straight. Well, yeah, you're probably going to have a problem. You know, there's always some, there's always something that we're not on the trappings that we're not going to like. I wish this the music was a little different, or those weird pews weren't there, or the background had a cooler blue light, or right this one weird person that I don't like, or you know, there's always something on the trappings that we want. But the the point the point of coming to God's house is to meet with God. 
And if that is first, the other things can all fall in line. And David understood, no, no, no. The, the reason I want to be in his house, his pavilion, his tabernacle, his temple, is because I want to meet with him. I want to be in his presence. I want to interact with him. And that's the thing that has to be central here. And that's why he could say, I want to dwell in his house all the days of my life. The, the best thing that he could imagine is to be able to be in God's house every single day of his life. You know, we've, we've had a literal challenge to being in God's house. David had that at certain times in his life. And even without COVID, there, there are other things that pop out. Christians around the world obviously face persecution, even more so from governments. You have a child, your mom used to be out all the time, you have to stay home, you end up with a health difficulty, you're in the hospital. There, there are times where believers long to be in God's house and they can't. Be a place where age comes in and we just can't make it out anymore. There's, there's, a, there's a reality of a longing to be in his house which is ultimately filled, fulfilled in heaven where his presence and his house again are one and the same. But there's a beginning of that here on earth. And he promises to manifest himself in a unique way in his house where his people meet. And David said, that's, that's all I want. And my life would be complete if I, could, if I could have that. And for us, you know, I've experienced a lot of great things and a lot of terrible things in church world. But I don't come here because of those. I come here because this is where I can meet God. And that's what I want. And he promises to meet me here. All the other things become secondary. And for David, this became so central that if that was the thing happening, everything else would be fine. All the provision that I need in my life from my time of trouble, I'll be hidden. He'll set me high. I'll see the beauty of the Lord. All the provision he needed, he wanted it with God. That, that was his key. Not simply from God. Too many people are easily satisfied just getting things from God without walking with God, without having his presence involved. Commentator Alexander McLaren would say, the inmost meaning of this psalmist's desire is that the consciousness of God shall be diffused throughout the whole of a man's days instead of being coagulated here and there at points. I like that description, right? Do we want God's presence diffused through all of our days, both hour and lifetime? Or do we want God at points, some people want God involved in their life at points. When I have a crisis, I want God. When I have a need, I want God. When I want a spouse, I want God. When I come to die, I want God. But kind of those in-between things that make up a whole lot of my life, maybe, maybe not. 
As long as I find him at those points, I'm okay. That's very different than the cry of, I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee. Or David here, wanting to find the Lord everywhere, at every point of his life. To behold, to inquire, the idea of that word there is to linger in contemplation. The type of contemplation that loses itself in the God who's present and manifest. That's that's the idea. I don't David wasn't the type of person who just wanted the stuff. He had stuff. He was a king. He had plenty of things. He wanted God. He's sitting in his castle, palace, with all his riches, thinking, I need to build God a house. I want to be with him. He wasn't satisfied with the gifts. He wanted the giver. And that type of experience naturally at the end of 6, you notice, therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. It ends in worship and in praise to him. You know, A.W. Tozer uh, wrote a book early in his life, one of his first books, maybe his most famous book, was called The Pursuit of God. But then later in his life, he wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, which is all about God. And he died writing a book on worship. It just seems like the right type of progression there, right? Pursuing God, finding God, worshiping God. It's what should happen in all of our lives. Here we find David pursuing God, finding God, worshiping God. He says, that's my focus. Jesus would tell us the same thing. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Don't worry about all that other stuff. Seek me first. And all that other stuff will be taken care of. Now in 7, David's going to double down on this pursuit of God and his troubles. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me or take me up. David, again, is, is bringing his cry to the Lord. Some, some people think here, some commentators or scholars argue whether this section is a subsequent addition from another writer. They say it has kind of a different feel to it. Maybe it was added in later. Uh, I would disagree. I think anyone who has felt the stability of God's strength and presence in a hard situation especially if you're in that and you understand, I'm being sustained by the Lord in a remarkable way, also can know and feel their own ability to turn away from that trust in God to something else and how weak they will be without him. And I think that's simply what David is doing here. He's simply recognizing God is there in his life in this difficulty. He is trusting and leaning on God, and he's like, I just don't want that to change. God, I just want to stick to you. I want to stay right here. 
where I have found this light and this salvation and this confidence and this strength. And he's crying out to the Lord that he will have mercy and he will continue this pursuit and interaction with God. He sees in a wonderful way, verse 8, a kind of, kind of a, ver- a strange verse. Like We would never say things like this, but I think it's so beautiful in human experience. He says, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. David sees even in his own desire for God, God. (laughs) The idea is God is the one who's moving first here. Always God is the one moving first. He's the one who created us. He's the one who gave us ourselves. And he's the one who gave himself to give us ourselves back. We didn't ask him to give his son. This was his plan. He died for us while we were still enemies. He died for the ungodly. He gave himself for us. He loved us, Paul says, and gave himself for us. He's always the one who makes the first move. He's the first move in salvation. His grace touched our hearts so that they could respond to him and his message and his forgiveness. And that's how we were saved a miracle of the work of the Holy Spirit in a heart, like Jesus says. And that's how our life with Christ begins. And then it just keeps on going like that. His Holy Spirit meets us. He speaks to us. He calls out to us. And we respond. And David sees God calling out to him as God's involvement in his life. The very manifestation of himself is a summons Because of who God is. Because he's perfect. Because there's not a being that you can think of that's greater. That's what it means that he's perfect. It's not anything you can contemplate that would be a better being in the universe. And David, recognizing that, recognizes God's voice in his life. Now, we all should. Because he speaks to all of us. I think he calls each of us in different ways. When you said, seek my face, there's moments in our lives where we know, God, you're calling me to seek you. God, you're calling me to seek you in a new way. God, you're calling me to seek you with a new surrender. You're calling me to take a step here. You're calling me to pursue you here, to give you more of my mind or more of my time or more of my heart. Or he's saying something to you that you don't want to hear, but you know he's saying it to you. He's calling out to each of us. He calls to all, everyone, because he calls to each of us individually. Again, I'm speaking to a crowd tonight, but the Holy Spirit is speaking to hearts. I am speaking what the Word of God says in general, but the Holy Spirit is speaking to you what you need to hear in specific. And he does that with all of us. He knows your life. And what truth you need. He knows where he's taking you. And what needs to be developed in your life to get there. He knows what you're about to face or where you are. He knows you better than you know yourself. Isaiah would say, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Do you think I'm wicked? Why would he speak to me? Well, listen, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts And let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. 
and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Calls to us. He speaks to us. If God is calling you, it's because he wants to do something in your life. When when people come down here and they they come down for prayer and they say, I think the Lord's doing something, I'm always encouraged because you know it's the Lord, right? Satan's not saying, "Go, go pray with a pastor. That'll be a good idea. Right? You know that's not... If, if God is, if you're feeling a call to, to commit yourself to him or to seek him in his word, you know Satan's not doing that. That's the Holy Spirit working on your heart. That's God saying to you, seek my face. And our response should be David's. My heart will say, your face, Lord, I will seek. When he's drawing, that should be an encouragement for you to run after him. He doesn't ask for our love just to withhold himself. That's not who he is. He doesn't say, come after me and then hide himself somewhere. He didn't tell his disciples, follow me and then run away. And they couldn't catch up or something. We have these weird thoughts about God that he does things like that. That he's calling us and he doesn't know he's calling us or he doesn't know our sin or he doesn't know what our situation is or... No, when he calls us, he does not withhold himself then. The question of willingness and wholeheartedness is never on his side. He's already proven that in the cross. It's always on our side whether the sincerity is real. Again, Jeremiah would say, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Some people think they really want God, but they don't. In the end, they don't reject him in his existence. They just forsake him. They walk away. Maybe there's some here. Maybe there's some listening that are one day going to be going after other things instead of God. Again, God would say in Jeremiah, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. If you would have went to God's people in that day, this is what God says of them. And said, you don't believe in God. They would have said, we're Israelites. What are you talking about? We don't believe in Jehovah. The temple is right there. I just went there. And what God says is, they committed two evils. They've forsaken me. They've turned from me. they followed after other things. It's not that they don't acknowledge me anymore. They might think that they want me. But they've gone after something else. And they've hewn for themselves some other place of life and strength but it can't hold what they really need. Sadly, he would say to them, they have turned their back to me and not their face. That incredible words from God. They've turned their back to me and not their face. Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. It's an incredible thing to hear from God, isn't it? My people have forgotten me days without number. 
They've gone on day by day by day, not thinking of me at all. It doesn't say they didn't believe in him anymore or denied his existence. They just could go on days without number, not even thinking of him. They're involved in other things. Listen, I think it's important, even if you're a person who thinks you can do without God right now, there will always come a day when we really do want God. And when I say want God, not the things he can offer us. I'm saying God. You realize, no God, I need you in my life. I don't just want something from you. I need you to be with me. In that day, if you seek him with all your heart, he promises to be found of you. He would say the same people in Jeremiah, Will you not from this time cry to me, My father, you are the guide of my youth. Will he remain angry forever? And of course it's a rhetorical no. Will he keep it till the end? Will he say, because you turn, this is it. And we're going we're gonna to end like this. Will he keep that, his anger, to the end? No, it's a rhetorical question. He says, turn to me and say, my father. Remember, I was the guide of your youth. Come back to that moment. This, this should be, for a person who walks with him, the most natural thing to hear. If God is in your heart and in your life, seek my face. And then for your heart to respond, your face, O oh Lord, I will seek. It's what we were made for. We were created to be in communion with him. God is more natural to the heart than anything else. He's the originator. He's the creator. Call it what you will, the human soul, the human spirit. Some writers have called it a garden, others a temple. The idea is God made in man a meeting place for himself and that being that he could commune and be in relationship with like nothing else in creation. And he is the most natural thing there, not sin, since the trespasser. So when God calls and says, I want to meet there, and we step forward, he will meet us. He will not forsake us. He will not turn from us. The idea of the language there, you notice he says, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn from your servant. You have been my help. The idea is you have ever been my help. You have always been my home. Therefore, don't, don't cast me away. Don't forsake me. This is the only place I ever want to be. I don't want any other home. You have ever been my help. And even if, notice, when my father and mother forsake me, the idea is even when the dearest human connections forsake us, he won't. And we don't know what this was for David. Um, you know, the, the picture initially when Samuel comes to David's house and he comes to anoint a son of Jesse with oil, Jesse lines up all his sons, and most of us know the story. They look like kings, each of them, 
And Samuel sees the first and he says, Eliabal, this has got to be the one. And God says to him, no, 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 that's not the one. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. That's not the one, Samuel. And he brought the next and the next and the next. His dad didn't even think he was important enough to invite him to the meeting. It's kind of sad, right? He's like, don't you have any other sons? He's like, there is but one more. He's out there. I didn't invite him. Do you see that? So I don't know what his relationship was with his parents or his family. His brothers didn't seem to like him very much later, although it seems some turned and began to recognize God's work in his life. But whatever his relationship was in his family, God saw a kid sitting out there in that field, and he was at home with that individual, in that heart, in that life. And he could say, even if your closest relations forsake you, then the Lord will take me up, take care of me. The, the idea of the language there is actually, invite me in like a welcome guest. I will find welcome here with him. No matter what the situation is. David knew this was true. These weren't words for him, again. This wasn't just a nice Bible verse. He wasn't just trying to write something poetic. The Holy Spirit didn't keep this for thousands of years because it sounds cool. It's because it's true. And the beauty is in the truth of it. David knew what it was for the Lord to prepare tables for him in the presence of his enemies. He could be surrounded and be communing with God. That's why that kid could run out there against that giant. He was communing with something else, connected to something else, someone else, a different light, a different life, a different strength. Something he knew that was true personally alone, he brought to that situation. And what David is saying is, when you call me, I will respond. And I know you'll take me up. You're not going to forsake me. You've always been my help. And if even every other human relation goes away, I will be your welcome guest alone with you. Powerful hope that he puts forward here. Now, in verse 11, he says this, So teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. And I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord and be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So David, in the middle of this, obviously still turning to the Lord, asking God to teach him his way. Do you ever feel like you're wandering through life and it's dangerous and you're just trying to find God's way? Lord, what do you want me to do here? Where am I going here? I like that prayer there. 
make it smooth, Lord. I, I want a smooth path after you. I need, I need some clear direction here from you. David needed these things. I think we all do. I think he also knew that oneness with God's will is what would keep him. It would make him invincible to evil, uh, not not protected or inaccessible to it. That's that's the whole point here. There there was still evil in his life. It didn't take away all the evil evil circumstances, but he knew he would be victorious if he was walking in God's path in the middle of those things. That they couldn't reach him or harm him there. And he desired to know God's way, and he needed to be taught that. Uh, Psalm 25, 4 and 5 say this, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation, and on you I wait all the day. Right? If you want to know God's way, you have to be taught his, his word, his truth. You continue to pour it into your life and into your heart. You will have direct command from him. You will have direction because you know his way, his nature. It becomes something familiar to you. How many times have all of us been in a scenario where somebody tells us something about God or tells us something about the Bible or tells us something about some situation and we just get that feeling like, eh, right? I don't know about that. There's something a little weird about this. There's something fishy. You're reading something in some book and you're like, yeah, would I say that? Would I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not sure what I think about that. Right? You want to know why? Because you should know God's way, his person, his personality. Like a friend of yours. If somebody came up and told you, hey, your friend said this, there, it would be the type of thing that you would say, oh, yeah, they would definitely say that. Or you might go, eh, that doesn't sound like something they would say. They wouldn't typically act like that in that scenario or, or bring out that type of thing. Why? Because you know them, their nature, their personality, what they're like. You're familiar with that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God reveals himself in his word. He speaks about himself in his word. He teaches us who he is through his word. And as it washes over us, our hearts, our minds, we learn Christ, who he is. We have the mind of Christ, the Bible says. We see his life and his example and his person. And it begins to guard us. Right? How, how many people out there have a skewed version of Jesus because they don't have the real thing. That's why Satan's always attacking the word of God. Always trying to convince people that they can't actually know it. The Bible has so many different views of things and interpretations. You can't really know. And like parts of it are wrong. And if you really understood the writings and, and the manuscripts, you would understand that Paul got certain things wrong, but it's just because he believed these things in his day. And of course, the scholars are the only ones who can tell you which part of the Bible is true and which part isn't. And they don't like any of the parts that make them accountable to God. They just like the parts that make them, right? Like this is, people, people attack, Satan attacks the word of God because he knows God is revealed there in his person. And David says, Lord, Teach me your way. Teach me what you're like. 
lead me in a smooth path. I have enemies. I have false accusers. I have people that can trip me up. I, he understands in his own, if I look at myself compared to my enemies, and, and as a, a man like David, you would, you would think it would be pretty easy to trust in yourself. It's a pretty remarkable strength, pretty remarkable victories. He's a pretty bright guy. But he, he has almost no trust in himself. And he's certainly a man who learned through his own failings that he couldn't put trust in himself. He needed to trust in God. God, I'm not smart enough to work through all these things. And I'm smart enough to know I could get tripped up just about anywhere. And I have enemies that are against me. And false witnesses. I don't want to be delivered to their will. I don't want to be handed over to men. I want to know your way. He's careful about those who are breathing out violence, those who have risen against him. And God was faithful to teach him those things. God, God answered this prayer in David's life. He shepherded his soul. He led him. He guided him. He directed him. David got there. And God will be faithful in your life if this is your prayer. This should be your prayer. I shouldn't be telling you something to convince you these things. These things should just be reminders of what's already there. A reminder that, the, that God is speaking to your heart, telling you to seek him. A reminder that I can be confident in God in the midst of my difficulties. A reminder that I can be taught and know him and be directed because of my familiarity with who he is. These things are just reminders. If I have to convince you, you're probably not born again. If you are born again, the Holy Spirit's already telling you these things in your heart. And he tells you how to work them out, particularly in your life, just like he does me in my life. And he's, he's faithful to do it. Even though the enemy will work against that in our lives. And David had that confidence in him where he could say, verse 13... I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. His his idea here is, of course, he's speaking to himself, encouraging himself in the Lord, that believing half of his soul, addressing the doubting half of his soul. This happens with David a lot. I think we all understand that. It's cool to talk to yourself. You just... You know, if you start talking back in a different way, that could be bad. But as, as long as you're, you're encouraging your soul in the Lord, that's cool. And David, David had a, a trust in God's goodness. Like, I believe that I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living, that he is good, that it is his inclination to be bountiful with his creation. It, it is his heart to, to be good towards us. And again, that, that is challenge. It's easy for us to have hard thoughts of God. But the writer of the Hebrews would say that we have to believe that God is, but that's not enough. He's also a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I, if I want to please God, I have to believe that he is, but I can't just say I believe that God exists. That's not enough. I 
have to believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, that he's faithful, that he's good. Right? A lot of people believe God exists. But if you just believe a God exists, your, your life can say all different types of things. They, the ancient pagans believed in all types of gods, but they believed gods that were distant. And so they acted like the gods didn't care. Or they believed their gods were very fickle and angry and vindictive. So if they didn't come at the right feast, their god was going to strike them with something horrible. So they'd offer their own children to make up for their mistakes. Or they believed their god just cared about petty little things like money and trinkets. So they just were always collecting their petty things to bring to their gods. What? It's one thing to say I believe God exists, but what does our life say about the character of the what God exists? The God of the Bible? Who who is the God that we say exists? That we claim in our hearts and in our lives to walk with, to want to be with, to make it our one focus, to follow, to know. Who who is that God to us? If there was an unsaved person that just followed you around for the last month and I said, that person believes in a God, tell me what you think they believe about their God. What would they write down about you? What would they say? They say, that person's God is boring. They don't spend very much time with him. Or that person's God must not care very much about their life. They're scared all the time must not be a very powerful God. Or they don't worship or give thanks very much, so their God must be stingy. What, what would they say about the God that we claim to believe in, the God who exists? You know, it's really sad for somebody who's experienced the goodness of God to lose heart in the end, right? That'd be a really sad thing. David said, I would have lost heart if I didn't believe in the goodness of God, if I didn't believe in his nature, not just that he is, who he is, I would have lost heart. And he said that about the Old Testament God, that people want to pit against the New Testament God. They're one and the same. David could say, the God I know, man, he's been really good to me. It was a, he was a witness. And I believe that I will see the goodness of this God. So he gives us an exhortation in 14. He says, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. It's... One thing to believe in God and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But, you know, if I say, do we believe in God? Yes. If I say, do you believe he's good? Yes. And then I say, can you wait for it? That's the hard part, right? Yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe that. No, I reject that in the name of the Holy Ghost. I don't want to wait for it, right? That's, that's the thing, though. David says, wait for it. 
Abraham waited till the knife was in the air, right? Joseph waited. Moses waited. David waited. We, we see believers waiting, some of them to the very last minute sometimes. Saints, these Old Testament heroes waiting to see the goodness of God. They saw it. And in the end, we know all the world will see it. When Jesus comes back, it makes everything the way it's supposed to. But there's a place where even now, individually, we're called to see his goodness in this land, in our lives. But sometimes we're going to be called to faith with patience. We can't always dictate the way that God will be good to us, right? We want to we wanna prescribe that. You have a, a, somebody that you really care about and you want them to get saved and you've been trying to get them out to church and, you know, they finally say yes and you're like, this is it. They're going to get saved today. And then you're totally depressed if they don't because you prescribe to God this is how it's going to happen, right? Wait. Be of good courage. Do you start to falter somewhere along the line? Join the club. So did Abraham, so did Elijah, so did so, did so many of these guys. The waiting was the hard part. But David said, he will strengthen your heart. He'll find you there. If you're waiting on him, when you get antsy, he'll help you. He'll strengthen your heart. Wait then on the Lord. And he will respond in faithfulness. You're not going to look around and say, man, I'm ashamed that I gave God time. I'm ashamed that I waited on him. I'm ashamed that I made my pursuit of him my one target here. I really should have chased after other things. You'll never say, I'm ashamed I turned back to him when I heard him say, don't turn your back to me. Turn your face. Stop forgetting me. Say my father. I'm your guide from your youth. You hear me? I said seek my face. I'm not going to forsake you. Turn to me. Right? And he will be faithful to respond. David's exhortation in the end is him simply being a witness. Hey, this is God's word about himself, but then also, I'm a witness that it's true. As I'm sure, there's many other here in this room tonight that if I said, who could say the same thing, you would raise your hands. Yes, I could say the same thing. This is true. This is who he is and who he will continue to be. Let's stand up. We're going to pray. We're going to worship him. And I encourage anybody that just feels like you need the Lord's strength in one way or another to continue to pursue him wherever you're at, come down afterwards. Let us pray with you. Uh, just ask the Lord's blessing on your life. But let's pray. Lord, we just... Thank you for your goodness toward us. We thank you that you never change, 
that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the only thing that we find out about you, Lord, is you are even more good and even more faithful, even more present and loving and great than we could have known. So, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to continue to call us to pursue us and give us hearts, Lord, that are quick to respond to you, quick to turn to you, Expand our hearts to be able to love you more, Lord. You know we can't even do that on our own. Count us worthy, Lord, to love you more and to worship you as you're truly worthy of being worshipped. So we acknowledge you again tonight in this place. And we thank you for the access that we have into your presence because of the blood of your Son. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.